Good afternoon, doctors, and welcome to the Sean Steele's Monthly Telephone Conference. Today's special guest will be Sam Collins. Remember, if you have a question at any time, press the number one on your touchtone phone, and we will get to those in the order in which they are received. Your host, Sean Steele. Stephanie, thank you very much. That was that was very good and professional. Uh, doctors, this is a fastest half hour in the entire month. Uh, we're going to go over some complicated uh, material right now, but that's crucial to a healthy and thriving practice. Our goal of today is to uh, to raise as many questions and and provide answers, but also to give you a pathway to get more answers. We're calling this coding and building that fortifies your PI claims. And that's not just a, a, a marketing device. There's a lot of insurance companies that are going after the way that we set up the treatment plans and can't justify them, not documenting right the right kind of documentation for particular services. We're going to look at gaps in care. Uh, but today we've got Sam Collins. Sam's one of my one of my great friends and colleagues in chiropractic. Uh, Sam is extremely popular, lectures all over the country on what I call the most boring subject on earth, coding and billing. Uh, but he makes it exciting, he makes it sensible, uh, and he basically has saved uh, thousands of practices. Uh, he's, a, he's a source that I go to and I have these tough building questions. And, of course, you can uh, enroll into his uh, network and uh, you get Sam personally. It's, it's, it's really a great advantage. Uh, this is the most popular turnout we've had yet. Hundreds of doctors are listening right now. We record it. It'll be on our website, seansteel.com, in a couple of days. So if uh, if you're missing part of this, uh, you're, you you can listen to it to your heart's content. Sam, welcome aboard. Well, thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. I love this this time with you, and I'm glad to hear the numbers are good. And you know what? It may be a boring topic, sort of, but I always say when it's money, it's not boring. No, it's not not boring at all. Let's let's start off with our diagnosis. Uh, diagnosis. Uh, one of the great problems we always run into in every case, and, and I have since I first started as a lawyer, uh, is questioning chiropractic value. And and this goes back into Neolithic times where they say, well, look, uh, if you don't touch the patient, if it's a simple sprained strain, uh, you're going to get well in the natural history in four weeks. So why is a chiropractor treating them for, for six months with a bill of $5,000? And it, even though it's a, an old point, I'd like to have a refresher, thought, uh, your refreshing thoughts on that. Well, here's where I'll start with. The first thing, I always look at how insurance companies will look at this. And the first thing an insurance company is saying, this is a trauma. And when it's a trauma, there's an expectation of a trauma diagnosis. Some doctors are afraid to use trauma diagnosis because trauma diagnosis, as you noted, are self-limiting. If I sprain my ankle, even if I don't go to the doctor... Given a few weeks, it's probably going to get better. Now, here's the problem. Getting better does not necessarily mean that it's getting well. You know, you can have a bone that's fractured. Mm. If you don't set it, yeah, it's still going to mend, but then you're going to have a lot of dysfunction left over. So chiropractic fits the bill where we allow this hopefully to get well faster, but most importantly, get back to its pre-injury status. So the first thing I'd emphasize is making sure that the diagnosis matches the problem because an insurance company is going to attempt to deny it. If I have someone come in with a headache from a car accident, if I'm an insurance company, I'm going to look, go, oh, wait a minute. Has this patient had a headache in the last month? If so, maybe it's not from the car accident. So I would implore doctors, when you're coding headaches, code post-traumatic headaches. Relate everything to the trauma and show that it's part of it. And if you don't, then you have to write a report to indicate, well, this headache's part of the trauma. Well, I try to resolve that because often we're not writing reports when we first send the bill. 
they're going to go by the diagnosis. So instead of using headache, I would use, for instance, the code G44, that's G as in George, 44.319, which is an acute post-traumatic headache, or if you go G44329, chronic, and that just deals with is it acute or chronic, as we all are aware. The same applies with strain sprains. If someone's had a trauma, it's definitely a sprain. It's a strain. The difficulty I think where doctors run into issues is that they get denials because they're afraid to use it, so do use trauma. But another factor that comes in, if I just use a strain sprain, that's going to be somewhat self-limited. However, I will implore doctors, be sure you are grading your sprains. You know, is it a grade one? Is it a grade two? Is it a grade three? Because that definitely makes a difference as to the level of care. Now, there is no diagnosis code for grading. That will be part of the chart notes, but it certainly will come into play. And Sam, then the other Sam, two Sam, factors, Sam, yes. mm-hmm. Sam stand, stop right there. That's so important. Nobody grades. I, I'm telling you, I review, oh gosh, maybe up to five reports each day, every day of the week, maybe 25 a week. Uh, and, and I don't see the grading. MDs don't do it. DCs don't do it. Just It's so rare, and I think it adds so much value and integrity to the report. So give me an example. Uh, if uh, go, go over again what's a one, two, and a three. And then secondly, how does that impact care? Well, it impacts it greatly. So by example, let's say you have a grade one. A grade one is definitely still a sprain or a strain, but it causes really no rupture. It's kind of a stretch of the vessel. So it's the most minor type. It certainly would need the least amount of care. And most people who have a grade one, frankly, are never going to go to the doctor. This is a simple one where a person says, oh, man, I rolled my ankle. And, you know, they take off a few days, no big deal. The majority of people have a grade two. A grade two is still a tear. It's just not complete. Now you're going to get a lot more bruising, a lot more swelling associated with it, probably some laxity in the joint. This all of a sudden requires a much greater care plan because we're dealing with many more factors here. It's not just a simple stretch, but actually a tear. So a grade two means a little bit more detail in that. Then, of course, you can go to the grade three, which is a more severe or basically a complete tear. So I'll give a good example. I know there's probably a lot of docs from California calling. And if you're familiar, the Lakers have a player right now. His name is Lonzo Ball. Lonzo Ball, a few weeks ago, had what they called a high ankle sprain, which, of course, I don't know what they mean by high ankle because there's one joint. There isn't a low and a high. That being said, what they really mean generally is that it's severe. And they said it's a grade three. And they said he'll be back in four to six weeks. There's no way. A grade three means a tear. And I just read this morning that, oh, he's not coming back yet. Well, no kidding. A grade three is so severe, it potentially could need surgery. And so by grading kind of gives you a sense of how much care this patient is going to need. So I'll give an example. There's the Foreman Croft guidelines that uh, auto insurance specialists use, and I bet a lot of doctors listening have had reviews by them. And what they recommend for a grade two will surprise you a bit. For the first week, they expect the patient to be seen every day. For the next three weeks, they're looking at somewhere about three to four times per week, or excuse me, for the next two weeks, then three weeks after, one to two times, and it it reduces down to about 18 visits is what their expectations are. A typical grade one, maybe to a grade two. But what it does state, though, is so long as you can demonstrate functional improvement and it's continuing, they'll allow more. But that's for a grade two. If you have a grade one, not so much, because grade one, not very severe. Grade one, most people aren't going to come to your office anyway. So I very, very strongly doubt Someone is seeking care for a grade one. I'm not saying absolutely no, but that's why if you don't state grade two, the insurance company is going to assume, oh, it's grade one. 
you know what? That's that is such a telling point, uh, Sam. That's the clearest explanation I've heard in my entire life about the value of having having grading schemes on this. And and it, and I was just you just stated it, but I'm thinking, of course, if you don't state it, it's implied it's a grade one. Grade one doesn't need much care, and why are you seeing a doctor in the first place? So just to protect yourself, let's put it this way: to fortify yourself. Let's let's start grading how serious these injuries are because you know how serious they are, and this is why in many cases this might surprise somebody. I I find most chiropractic reports in terms of diagnosis and billing actually better documented than most MDs. That's another story altogether. Well, no, I agree with you there, Sean. I, MDs love to code pain, mm-hmm. and of course that's a horrible code because it's true, but that's like calling you or I a human. That's true, but that doesn't give much description from the other, you know, four billion people on the planet. Sam, we're going to talk about treatment plans, and uh, particularly treatment plans are now, insurance companies have developed their own theory of treatment plans, which basically says don't touch the patient too much, not too frequently, and certainly not for any duration. And, of course, if they could get away with it, they'd have everybody basically getting 12 visits, 30 days, or whichever is least. How do we deal with treatment plans that, that are robust and that are appropriate? Okay, so I'll, I'll still go back to say the first place to set a treatment plan is giving what I call the Rembrandt diagnosis. Give me a diagnosis that when you read it, you say to yourself, oh, that's what's wrong with the patient. So here's some other things beyond the grading. Indicate any complicating factor. Think of how many patients have reversal of curvature. There's a code for that. How many patients have spondylosis or arthritis? There's a code for that. How many times do patients have severe spasm? There's a code for that. If it's not coded, it doesn't exist as far as the insurance is concerned. You can write all you want in the notes, but no coding doesn't exist. Hmm. So code it as complete as possible to make sure you have things going on. If there's comorbidities, if you have a patient that has that's diabetic, and that diabetes is not well controlled, I'll guarantee that's going to change how this patient responds. Now, I'm not treating diabetes, and I'm not saying we are, but it complicates it. So I want to give a very full picture. So think complications, comorbidities. I say curvatures, spondylosis, spondylolisthesis, ligament laxity are all part of that, and then other comorbidities that aren't direct but indirect. So now the treatment plan then, of course, is based on that. So I gave that example of Lonzo Ball. If it were a grade one, he'd be back by now. Grade two, he'd be back. There's no way he'd be out for eight weeks if it wasn't a grade three. Wow. So wow. the severity determines the amount of care. So what we first try to do when a patient comes in, the care plan is first trying to protect the area from being hurt any further. And we want to control swelling. We want to control spasm. And so this is where it makes sense to have passive services. This is where there could be compression, ice, electric stim, uh, effleurage to try to move out fluid and all that. So all the passive things that generally go on, and it doesn't mean you won't start the manipulation, but it means that you're going to be doing those maybe for the first two weeks just to calm the thing down. But then as you move away, you want to start not just relying on passive care because passive care, you're not going to ice a sprained ankle for four weeks. You're definitely going to ice it for the first 48, maybe to one week. 48 hours, I should say. So that being said, move or transition toward some active care as the body will tolerate it. Certainly every guideline that we've all read, and most chiros have read them, all indicate that an area that's been injured needs to be rehabilitated because when you injure an area, you don't move it. When you don't move it, the muscles atrophy. 
the ligaments become stiffer. They don't heal the same way. So we want to start putting this patient into an active protocol. So it means as soon as the patient can tolerate, you should have some movement towards active care. Now, active care means things like exercise, therapeutic activities, 97530, or neuromuscular education, or that could even be in a group. But And I'm not saying you're putting the person into 24-hour fitness, but you got to start a progression so that we can restore ADLs. And if you can show that type of progression, it all makes sense. When I see a claim where a doctor has done the same care for three months, I'm going to go, that, wouldn't that change a little bit? Wouldn't you be doing something more or different as the patient progresses? It wouldn't be the same. If you do the same diet and exercise routine for two years, you're not going to change as much as one that would be progressive that you either have to exercise a little more or diet a little more. Otherwise, you're going to just stay exactly the same. So I want to say kind of keep that same factor. The other thing I will emphasize, when you've got a patient that is a very severe injury, let's document that. The first thing I want to see a doctor do is use what they call a validated outcome assessment tool. So that's going to mean something like an oswestry or a neck disability. What those do is help to grade that severity so it's something that's kind of hard or objective. Then as they progress, you do this every re-exam so you can clearly show, hey, this patient went from 80% disability to a 40%. Now, that definitely shows your care is working, but they're not completely well, which we don't expect. And that's the difficulty I find most chiros run into, oh, they want to cut off my care, well, I'm going to cut off your care, too, if you're still doing ice and stim after six weeks. I'm like, what's the point? What are you still doing massage for? Now, massage here and there, maybe, but the massage is for pain, swelling, stiffness. If I'm still dealing with that at eight weeks, it's not working. I'm, I'm looking at uh, when, you, when, you, when you get into these treatment plans from the insurance companies, what have you seen from AIS, for example? Apparently well, they've got a, they've they've got an entire approach that uh, really defies a, a healthy chiropractic practice. Well, for the most part, it does because here's what they do. Obviously, when you look at a guideline like anything, there's an average. So they're going to go on the low end of average, where that same guideline has a high end. So what they do is they spend all the time telling you it should happen in 18 visits. But what doctors don't read after that is that 18 visits can be extended if you can demonstrate functional improvement as a result of care. Now, here becomes the issue. I have to demonstrate functional improvement. So I'll make it real simple. Think of a person going on a diet. If I put you on a diet and my goal is for you to weigh 150 pounds, guess when the diet is over? When you weigh 150 pounds. Right. So therefore, doctors have to look and go, okay, here's where the patient is at. How do I get them to this point and how do I measure it? So, so long as you have some validated points, you can demonstrate why I want to continue with this patient that they haven't achieved what their expectations are. And if you can continue to demonstrate functional improvement, they'll allow it to continue. Here's the difficulty. Many patients will often respond very well to chiropractic care, and we can't fool ourselves. If they're well, they're well. However, it's always things that are more, and this is where doctors forget the complications. If I looked at a strained sprain and saw more than six weeks, I would question it as well. But here's the problem. It is more than a strained sprain. The problem is I won't know that until we're arguing at the time of settlement, which if I'm arguing after the fact, it's probably not in the notes. And I live by, you've got to document. If it's not there, it doesn't happen. So if your patient has missed care, they've taken off two weeks because there's something happened in their family, 
it happens, but you better address it because it otherwise weakens your claim. And so the same applies with the documenting of how this patient's changing and just progressive. Like maybe when they first start, they could only do two of the exercises due to pain and so forth. But at week eight, now they're doing six. But we need them to do 10, and we need them to achieve where they can do a full squat. They need to be able to touch their toes and sit at work all day. So it gives us a more bona fide way of looking at how our patient is changing and that we still have room to grow. So if I put you on a diet and the first week you lose five pounds and five pounds, that all makes sense. We should continue. But if I start reaching a point where you're not losing weight, either I've maxed out and what I'm doing is not going to work, or I may need to change it. And don't be afraid as you go along. Guidelines were meant to be a guideline. Sometimes you'll go beyond that because you'll discover, oh, what's going on? Here's a good example, another diagnosis. Many patients with a moderate, moderate, severe impact whiplash, if you will, if you were to do a flexion extension x-ray, I would bet 50% or more of those patients would begin to show some translation or what it would be ligament laxity. And, Sean, you all know, you've seen patients all the time that through your office that they'll talk about being in an accident, and they literally tell you, you know, I feel okay, but I still don't feel exactly right or good because that laxity is what allows the area to re-injure itself so easily, and this is why patients often recur. And but, but one Sam, of the reasons we're looking that, at that, that, that drives us crazy, too. When we get to patients, because if it's not precise, if it's not really clear, if it doesn't make sense, they, they, you know, they feel better, they don't have to see the doctor as much, but still, they, 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 you know, they have kind of a generalized discomfort. I don't have anything specific to look at. And then it raises issues. Are they malingering? Are they just chronic? Do they have, you know, personal issues? Is, is there a bit of hysteria? So, you know, we need to follow the metrics here because, you know, the, the, the carriers, the insurance companies spend a fortune on really smart doctors to attack us all the time. The, the oh, very sure. guy and those that, doctors. Yeah. Those doctors are ones that I'll say, and everyone in here knows, the ASH type. And I'm not right. necessarily negative on ASH more so than they just don't pay enough. But from this standpoint, every time ASH, they think everyone's going to get well in six visits. Well, with auto, they're going to look and go, well, look, if you look at the natural occurrence, this patient should be better within this time frame. The problem is that would be for that really simple condition not the major condition that most people have. And, again, that's where I go to uh, what, the what the doctors point out. If you document it, it makes sense, and it will be reasonable. I mean, think of how many patients. If you do an MRI of most patients beyond the age of 50, after an accident, they're going to show probably some disc bulging. Nothing major. I don't want to say, but here's the problem. Even that minor disc bulging is going to create a protocol where this patient is not going to respond the same when they were 20 years old and didn't have them. Now, That's whether right. that bulge was there before or not, I don't even care. All I know is because it's there, this patient is not going to respond. I mean, you take a 60-year-old in a car with a 15-year-old, same impact, the 60-year-old's a mess. Mm -hmm. Now, why isn't the 15-year-old? Well, their body is stronger, more supple. So those are things to take into effect, and doctors should document it. Why do you think this patient's well, – they're older. They have spondylosis changes. You know, their, their curvature of their spine is bad. I mean, we have this uh, protocol where everyone is looking at an electronic device constantly. I think our posture is probably the worst it's been in the history of man. <laughs> and yeah, yeah you're probably – 
Well, that's why that's why we have the stand up uh, uh, desk now because you know we you know staff staff here wants to stand up and, and move around, and I certainly encourage that because if you're stuck in front of a computer for eight hours, oh my God, it's just uh, a lot of things can go sideways. Sam, sure, yeah. uh, well, another issue is that we run into uh, uh, folks with gaps of care. Now, this is a great. Uh, uh, excuse for insurance companies to cut off care. They first of all, if it's a gap where where the patient didn't see any doctors before the accident, uh, I mean right after the accident, and it's been you know a long time. The longer you wait, the more difficult it is to prove that the accident actually caused injuries that for which the patient is treating. And then you have the gaps in the middle of care. They're both problems. How would you deal with them? Well, we start first with, and I will have to admit. When someone is hurting, they seem to find a way to get help. When they're not hurting, they don't. Now, that being said, that's an easy statement to make, and, of course, that's what insurance companies will make, but we know it can often be more complex, so here's how we have to approach it. When you take a history of a patient that had an accident a month ago, and they're just coming to you today, you want to highlight, okay, what happened after the accident? How did you feel? How did you feel the next day, next several days? What did they do to mitigate it? No one just goes, I did nothing. But often these patients, misguided as they are, will say, well, I thought it would be better. So I was taking eight you know, uh, leaves a day. I was trying to ice. My wife or husband was massaging me, but it was getting worse and worse. But I kept thinking it was going to go away. That starts to make sense when you get that. So now you write a report and put information that this patient attempted to self-treat and it wasn't working. And in fact, a delay in getting care on a significant injury actually prolongs the amount of care the patient needs. That's actually in the guidelines. The key is you want to highlight that there really was pain right away. They decided that they thought they could deal with it. I mean, we all know people that have different pain thresholds. Some people with a minor boo-boo are ready to go to the you know, emergency room. Other people can almost cut their finger off, and they're like, oh, it's fine. It's a scratch. So you want to deal with those ends of it. And the same would apply. Maybe there's reasons. There's nothing wrong with any a person's reasons. Just make sure it makes sense. And what I mean is, what if you had a family member that was very ill, they had to leave to go out of town? It happens. You talk about it, into it. Now, if they just say, hey, I had to go on vacation to, you know, Hawaii, I get a little nervous. So I want to ask, well, during vacation, what did you do? Well, actually, when I was in Hawaii, I had three massages at the hotel. Yes. You know what I want? And Some documentation of that. We just had a case like that this morning. I, we have a client that lives, spends half of her time in Southern California and the other half in Hawaii. What a lifestyle. She got into a very severe accident, and she is going to be going to Hawaii because she has a family business. And uh, the chiropractor asked what to do, and he says, well, absolutely prescribe. Put it in your record saying that you you, you know, you insist that she has uh, while she's there for two weeks at a time, that she actually gets a, a massage that she has to pay for, no massage therapist, take it on a lien, get a receipt, show that she actually did something proactive, and that she's following doctor's instructions. That usually will cover it. I have patients that travel all over the world, that, that license session, they got obligations. Well, again, they go to the local urgent care center. Uh, if they're on a, on, a, on a boat or at the airport, they can go, again, to an urgent care center and say, look, my neck's really acting up. Uh, what do you suggest? 
ask, can you help me? Uh, they may be even given uh, prescriptions. They don't have to take the prescription, but they ought to have, they ought to pay the, for the, you know, for the bills, which, which should not be too much, and, and to show that there's evidence that they're doing something about their pain. Now, I remember, Sam, in my first trial in life some time ago, uh, the defense attorney made a big deal that my client was 10 days late seeing the, pay, seeing the doctor. And, and the attorney just I never forgot the cadence. He says, well, what did you do the first day? Well, what did you do the second day? This went on. What did you do the fifth day? What did you do the sixth day? So I've learned a lot from that, that lesson. And the key is, is that there needs to be a story, a logical, cogent story. If the patient did absolutely nothing, they're running track, they're having a great time, and then suddenly they have delayed onset, it doesn't exist in Sean Steele's universe. Delayed onset, no. You have a trauma, and in your broken arm, uh, you know, you, you, you've got an abrasion, an airbag went off, you're going to have lots of problems, you're going to take care of it right away. That's just the human uh, response. Uh, but if it's a delay, but if the pain is not so great that you think it's going to go away, we got to have evidence. Every single day, there's got to be a story. Did you go to the massage? Did you go uh, to a hot bath? Did you go and and did your wife uh, rub your neck? Did you bring uh, hot packs? Did you try uh, uh, you know over the counter medications? That's the kind of story that the doctor and the patient must go through methodically. And if the gap isn't explained. Treatment's over. Case has lost its value, and the, and the case is done. And I believe if you interview the patient properly, you'll get that out of them. They have a tendency to forget. And this is I put the importance to the doctors to go with the patient and say, okay, what was going on? What did you try to do? What happened? What, what if anything, did you do? Because I doubt anyone says to themselves, I'm hurting, and all I'm going to do is go to the doctor. Everyone tries to do something. Oh, sure. sure and they sure. always think it's going to work. I've done it myself. Just tell and, me that story. It makes sense. I'm never going to put someone down for doing such. Yeah. And you just have to make sure that someone can't say, well, they looked. They just took two weeks off. They probably didn't. But if you don't remind them because it was three months ago, they're going to look like, well, I, I don't remember now. That's part of the historical thing that we must do as providers when these things occur. Because as time goes, memories fade. So that's why we document. Yeah. We document that, so that two months from now we'll remember what happened. I, I, uh, one last note on that. I, there's nothing, if it's a new patient, it, it, it's almost a crime against humanity if you don't interview the new patient yourself that you've never seen before and go over the history of how they got hurt. Almost a, a film frame, uh, by, frame by frame, so that the patient learns to trust you, learns to follow your leadership, learns to uh, uh, take your suggestions seriously. If you have staff do it or they're filling out forms, boy, I think you lose a lot of uh, potential in having a lifetime patient. Sam, we've reached the end of our uh, of our time. Um, if I have a question or any doctor here has a question, they want to get a hold of you. Uh, how, how do they join your network, and how do they get a hold of you? Okay, so what they can do is just go right to our website, which is HJROSS, so H-J-R-O-S-S, and the word company, company spelled in full, dot com. And on that site, we have everything we offer. We do continued education seminars, which you attend for us and help teach. We also do the service called the network. What, what the network does, though, is when you join that, it gives you direct access to call me, to email me or fax me on an unlimited basis for an entire year. So you'll see it on there as well. We also do a coding manual, and this coding manual updates 
all the CPT diagnosis codes as orthopedic tests. We have treatment protocols for insurance companies, forms, you name it, doctors' liens. What we try to do is be as complete as possible to give you access to make sure you're getting paid. So that would be the way to get a hold of me. Just go right to our site, and then that way you join the network. You can join for a year. You can join for a month. Or if you only have one question, we do offer a fee-for-service. What we want to make sure is we're here to help you. We need to make sure you're successful. At the end of the day, I teach continuing education seminars. And if I'm not keeping you educated to have a good practice, I won't be around. So it's very important to me to make sure that doctors understand what they need to do, how they need to do it, to make it easy. PI is the last place that you can get literally full pay. But you just have to make sure that that claim that you're sending is legitimate, it's fair, it's reasonable, and at the end of the day, simply just makes sense. Sam, thanks very much. This is a... uh Again, it's the fastest half an hour that I know of. We have two more excellent, uh, actually, doctors coming up. Uh, Moshen uh, Shah, who is uh, a neurologist as well as a board-certified neurosurgeon. He does traumatic surgery in Orange County on a regular basis. And he also will see uh, uh, trauma head cases where people have traumatic brain injury. Uh, There's a whole new level of expertise and care being administered for TBI patients. It used to be like like with the old... uh, uh, the back injury, just go home and, and you know, sleep it off, and, and, of course, with catastrophic results. Well, same thing with traumatic brain injury. You just don't go home and, and, and take aspirin. There, there are active protocols uh, that we've learned a lot since the wars in Afghanistan and Iran that, that's useful and helpful for accident victims. We, of course, we get our favor to Gary Lukovich. Lukovich is the, the great guru of, uh, of, of chiropractic and PI. Uh, he always has new insights about what nasty things insurance companies are doing and how to deal with them. Insurance companies got a lot of smart people figuring out ways of not paying claims, and we have to keep, uh, you know, forcing those doors open, and that's why uh, lawyers like me are, are, are busy with that. And lastly, uh, Sam Collins was kind enough to put together what I call the 200 leading trauma codes that you'll generally find in most accident cases. You're welcome to get a copy of those codes. Just contact me, Sean Steele at SeanSteele.com, and you'll get a copy of it. Uh, we have our uh, PI newsletter. I bet most everybody gets that. We send it out once or twice a month. We have a lot of fun with that. If you've got a great story or a question about PI, uh, just uh, contact me, and uh, we'll address it. Uh, I'll either answer personally, or I'll suggest you contact Sam Collins, or uh, we'll publish it in our newsletter. Doctors, thanks very much. It is now uh, one thirty-one. I wish everybody a prosperous and healthy week. Thank you, Sam Collin. All right. Thank you, Sean. Take care, my friend. Thank you for your participation. You may disconnect the line at this time.